show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I had a little drink about an hour ago and it's gone right to my head. Wherever I may roam, on land or sea or foam, you can always hear me sing this song. Show me the way to go home. Hello. Welcome to the virtual pub for some drinks, trivia and social history with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim and I'm joined by my drinking buddy, Illyri. What are we serving today? Rum! I'm drinking rum. Arr. I feel like a pirate. <laughs> <laughs> are we talking pirates? Haven't we done pirates? Pirates? No, we are a bit more specific. Uh-huh. Um, a, one of the pirates' many favourite pastimes. Smuggling. 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 You see, you you went to rum with smuggling. I've gone whiskey. Oh. Um, so I am drinking The Singleton um, by Glen Ord, 12 years old, Scottish whiskey. I've also got a beer on the side as well, but he's counting. <laughs> mm. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, that was underwhelming. <laughs> I feel like I feel like we've done that so many times. <laughs> the the underwhelming clink. Oh, that's going to be the next. That's going to be the third incarnation of our podcast name. The underwhelming clink. Um, smuggling. Obviously, this is a huge subject. I have confined what I am looking at. I think mostly to the UK. Um, I've gone north and south, um, pretty much. Uh, smuggling in the UK. I have found is almost entirely inspired by heavy import duties and taxation. <laughs> it's like one of those crimes that has come about because the government sort of made it far too tempting not to commit that crime. <laughs> um, I say the UK actually throughout history and across a lot of cultures, you do see it over and over, particularly in relation to drinks. Um, and then when the heavy taxation stops, the law-abiding consumption just returns. Mm-hmm. So I think there's probably a message in there somewhere for us. Uh, something, when... something to do with drugs, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think I tried to make this point about um, about drugs regulation before, so I didn't go do it again, otherwise it's going to sound like I've got a really bad habit. But yeah, <laughs> there is there, there is a lesson for us to learn. I'm not going to talk about drug smuggling, though, just, just alcohol smuggling, I think. Speak for yourself. Um, I'm, I'm not, yeah. actually. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about it and doing it are two different things. Oh, right. Sorry. Got yeah. Me. Yeah. Um, when I picture smuggling uh, in the UK, I mostly think about the golden age of smuggling, so the 18th century, kind of like those Ara pirates. And also I think about whiskey and Scotland, just because I think it's so visually evocative. Um, but the, the main items smuggled in the 18th century weren't just spirits like uh, whiskey and brandy and rum. It was also tea and wine and lace and all manner of goods. Anything that basically became more expensive to buy at home than it was to smuggle it in illegally because of foreign wars, etc. Um, in 1784, actually, the, the prime minister of that time, William Pitt the Younger, said that of the 13 million pounds in, in weight, not cost, of tea consumed in Britain, and that's a lot of cups of tea, of the 13 million pounds of tea consumed in Britain, only five and a half million had been bought legally. <laughs> yeah. That's so, impressive. 
So when we're talking about smuggling, actually tea is right at the top of the sheer volume of stuff that was being smuggled in. So um, I like to kind of, I think that should already reposition our view of what these smugglers looked like. They were <laughs> tea drinkers, for starters. <laughs> smuggling gangs as well. Were, you know, there were a lot of people and they were very organised. It wasn't just sort of a few bad eggs. Uh, smuggling gangs were usually up to 100 people and they each had a specific role. Um, a few I've got um, written down here. A spotsman would direct the ship to the shore. A lander would arrange the unloading of the cargo. A tubsman carried the goods. And a batsman protected the tubsman. Presumably <laughs> with a bat, although, I don't know, they had other things too. Um, <laughs> gangs would have to be watchful for the officers from HM Customs. So the coastline of Britain was divided into 33 areas. Uh, each with teams of preventative officers whose job it was to try and prevent the smuggling or catch the smugglers. Um, however, there weren't really many of them, <laughs> particularly to patrol the whole coastline, which, as we know, is vast. And so most smugglers were just never caught. And those that were caught often weren't convicted because few people were going to testify against them, um, either through threats or because they wanted their cup of tea. Um but aside from the whole coastline, let's go to Scotland first, because that, that was my first interest and I've got whiskey. Uh, so not just in taxation, but in 1757, there was a massive crop failure that um, made the British government want to prohibit the sale of distilled spirits for three years. Three years without <laughs> your tasty whiskies. Um, the use of a private still was actually not prohibited, though as long as you were only using it for household consumption. So as long as you were just making it for yourself, there was no law broken. But obviously, um, the Scots people are enterprising, and they're not just going to take that. So they started distilling and smuggling on a massive scale straight away. Um, by the time the ban was lifted on commercially producing uh, whiskies, sort of that door was already open duty-free whiskey was going to taste a lot better than uh, paying taxes for it. So that's kind of what really got the barrel rolling, as it was. Um, smuggling in Scotland was actually mostly inland, uh, from inaccessible places, uh, like the beautiful distilleries you'll still see in the Highlands, uh, to the coast. Uh, so that's actually bootlegging. Bootlegging is smuggling alcohol over land. And rum running is smuggling alcohol over water. Uh, but it's mostly about bootlegging in Scotland. Um, there's quite a lot of literature in particular, which is, I think, maybe why I think about Scotland, first of all. Quite a lot of literature about smuggling during um, uh, during that time. There, was, there weren't actually many novels written at the time about it. One of them was Sir Walter Scott in 1815, who wrote Guy Mannering. Um, and his his smugglers were also kidnappers, they were murderers, and I think that sort of sets the template for a lot of smuggler stories you get thereafter, particularly into the 20th century. Um, a lot of these English novelists were focusing on smugglers' brutality and their, their punishments that they deserved, and really the sort of the bravery of the excise men and the uh, noble anti-smuggling set set, uh, sentiments that were common amongst the people. But actually, the truth is there were quite low levels of violence, uh, which might seem surprising, given that I said they were essentially, you know, big paramilitary bands of 100 or so people. 
they were sometimes disguised as soldiers. They even had pipers in front of them. Um, they had access to military weapons. Uh, so the, the low level of bloodshed is probably down to the fact that the, um, the customs, the excise people, the coast guards that were opposing them were actually just really small in number. So it didn't make sense for this always to break out into a bloody fight. Um, and also, you know, the um, the smugglers didn't really need to fight. They didn't want to fight. They just wanted to get away with not being arrested and have their contraband transported. So there really is no sort of benefit or motivation for it to turn into to violence most of the time. That's another reason why you don't really see it. Uh, whiskey was smuggled from, as I said, the interior to the coast, mostly by unarmed people and also by, by women in broad daylight and in sight of the authorities. So women would wear these um, two-gallon belly canteens that were made of sheet iron, um, so to look like pregnancy bumps, but <laughs> filled with whiskey, <laughs> which I heartily approve of getting into festivals with. Um and sometimes they would have fake funeral processions as well uh, to move whiskey between points. And they would put it in coffins or hearses. And then they would just put them in like heavy black knapsacks as well when they were dressed up like soldiers. They even would hide them in <laughs> dead geese. <laughs> in unplugged dead geese, they would just put um, whiskey bottles and stuff inside them. <laughs> Yeah, anything. It's like the the examples you keep going through are actually pretty comedy. It's not you don't hear these violent stories at all, which I will come on to. Kind of probably the best example of that. Um, I also wanted to mention that the the Isle of Isla, which is very famous for its whiskey, didn't have any excise men on it at all. Um, and so when you look at kind of where where geographically in in the whiskey industry is considered you know quality and historic and, and all that sort of stuff it is actually informed as much by the lack of enforcement in that area as much as them having great crops or water or infrastructure or anything like that so that's another thing that kind of went into the reputation of, of whiskies um so this surprisingly accurate portrayal of smuggling uh my first fictional example i've got a couple of fictional things to talk about uh that's where my research went this time <laughs> and that's the film Whiskey Galore. Um, and that's because instead of focusing on murderers and violent crime as part of smuggling, it's all about the comical ruses that the locals use to try and evade the authorities. Have you have you seen Whiskey Galore? I've not. You know me. I'm rubbish with films. I've not seen most classic films. Uh, Whiskey Galore. <laughs> no, this is true. Um, <laughs> so Whiskey Galore. It's a 1949 uh, British comedy film uh, by Ealing Studios, the famous Ealing Comedies. And the story's taken from a novel of the same name, which concerns a shipwreck off a fictional Scottish island, and the inhabitants of which have run out of whiskey because of wartime rationing. So it's actually not set during the kind of 18th century smuggling heyday. This is a Second World War story. And the islanders find out that the ship is carrying 50,000 cases of whiskey, some of which they salvage against the opposition of the local customs and excise men. So it's basically a great big farce on a Scottish island uh, full of drunk people. <laughs> uh, but this story is actually based on a real incident that happened during the Second World War when the cargo ship SS Politician ran aground in 1941 off the north coast of um, Eriskay in the Outer Hebrides. 
And the local inhabitants from from the island and also from nearby South Uist heard that the ship was carrying 22,000 cases of whiskey and they rescued 7,000 of them before the wreck sank. <laughs> so it, it's actually pretty accurate. <laughs> Uh, stories from the filming. Uh, during filming, everything that the studios brought with them was prefabricated in Ealing that they brought the sets with them, which really perplexed the islanders as to why they were putting down things like artificial rocks on an already rock-hewn landscape. Makes <laughs> 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 Funny no enough, sense. that um, that reminds me. I was filming up in the Brecon Beacons, um, kind of at the end of last year. And Mm -hmm. Disney were up there filming um, a couple of weeks prior to us. And apparently they'd been um, not putting rocks there, but like moving rocks around and stuff. Just like completely trying to change the landscape of the place that they booked specifically to film in. It just makes (laughs) my mind boggle to think that God knows how much money and time was spent doing a recce to find the perfect spot and then they've booked it and they've got there and they've gone, no, actually, see that three ton boulder? We need to move that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this real landscape doesn't look real enough. We need to to fake it up a bit. Um, Another thing they, they had to create, which is quite funny, is they actually had to create a lot of dummy whiskey bottles because the island was really going through rationing so they didn't have enough whiskey bottles up there to use they had to create some fake (laughs) ones and take it up (laughs) um there's a there's a scene in the film soon after the first whiskey's been rescued from the ship that shows the islanders celebrating the return of whiskey to the island by drinking and and singing a song they're doing a a drinking song or a uh, bush de beer as, uh, as it's called, means, means mouth music. It's basically singing if you haven't got any instruments. Um, so the the music and the action are supposedly, according to the director, um, showing whiskey as the central focus of their enjoyment and they're, they're, they're having a lot of fun. The tune they use, the song, is Brocken Lam, which is a comical song that's about ill-made porridge. which being very thin is declared to be like gruel or even soans um so this sort of drinking whiskey song they're singing in reality is actually about thin porridge uh soans by the way i'm not sure if i pronounced that right but um, that's what i'm going with soans is the fermented juice of oatmeal husks boiled um, which was a sort of a favored drink and food of the scots um so it's made using the starch remaining on the inner husks of oats after they've been milled. So, you know, it's very good. They're not wasting anything. The husks <laughs> are soaked in water and they're fermented for a few days. And then the liquor strained off and allowed to stand for a day uh, to allow the starchy matter therein to settle. And then the liquid part, or the swats as it's known, is poured off and that can be drunk. And then the remaining sorns are boiled with water and salt until they're thickened and served with butter or dipped into milk and the flavour is quite sour. No, I'm out. <laughs> yeah, none of that sounds particularly appealing, <laughs> no. but I also, I get it. <laughs> you know, it's what you've got, use it. Um, anyway, the film isn't about porridge, it's very much about the love of whiskey. The um, the producer, Danishewski, um, called the film the longest unsponsored advertisement ever to reach cinema screens the world over. 
and um, the, the the large whiskey producer, the distillers company, apparently agreed with them. They presented everyone associated with the film a bottle of whiskey each and a big slap up dinner <laughs> to say thanks for um, making everyone want whiskey again. Um, it was released in UK cinemas in 1949. Uh, it was very successful as well. In France, the film was called Whiskey A Go Go, <laughs> which I like. I prefer that, yeah. Yeah, Whiskey and it's um, that's actually the the name of a club in Paris as well. <laughs> uh, Whiskey Galore was also released in the US at the end of 1949, but because of the restrictions on the use of names of uh, alcoholic drinks in titles, so they weren't allowed to call films anything boozy in the US at that time. Uh, they renamed it Tight Little Island. Mm. <laughs> I Sex mean, tape. <laughs> don't know. Yeah, I don't know what they were going for there. <laughs> the film isn't um, isn't particularly rude. It's 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 quite family friendly, really. Uh, it was given an open certificate in most territories, allowing people to see it. But Denmark said no. In Denmark, it was considered adults only. Um, they said there is in this film an obvious disregard for ordinary legislation in this case the law against smuggling also we believe that it was damaging for children to see alcohol portrayed as an absolute necessity for normal (laughs) (laughs) self-expression it's like all right lighten up Denmark (laughs) (laughs) I'm not saying they haven't got a point but you know (laughs) lighten up (laughs) anyway um yeah, so I think uh, on reflection, as I haven't gone into all the historic details, but I think my main point about smuggling in Scotland, at least, is it wasn't as bad as you thought. It was mostly because they were being unfairly taxed. People were just taking advantage. And it sounds like a lot of it was a whole bunch of japes. And if you want a good impression of what that might have looked like, go and watch Whiskey Galore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, whacking on the spreadsheets. Yeah. Um... Well, I did a lot of research into smuggling in Wales. You'd be surprised to learn. <laughs> I am so shocked I forgot to express myself. <laughs> <laughs> you can get a breast pump for that. Um, yeah, so I didn't really know anything about the history of smuggling in Wales. I had no idea that there was such a history of it so close to where I live. Um but it turns out I shouldn't really feel too bad on myself for that because apparently it's quite hard to get any information on um, smuggling in Wales and northwestern England. Um, Is that because they were so good at it? I've got some stories to tell later. And okay. So much. <laughs> I mean, there, there was some good and some bad, I guess. Um but no, it's because lots of the official records that were compiled by the individual custom houses were lost in the fire that destroyed the Thameside Custom House in 1815. Um, oh. So lots of it was uh, demolished, I'm afraid. Um, but some people would argue that, <laughs> well, it's it's such a shit claim to try and have, but they were trying to make out that the Welsh were... Um, happy to pay for the customer and excise duties that were put on them and that's why smuggling didn't happen in wales but um we can already call bullshit on that because there is a poem uh, by the 18th century poet um richard lloyd which sums up the simmering resentment in wales for the unfair taxes so as you've said smuggling comes off the back of everyone being unfairly taxed on all kinds of stuff Mm -hmm. and the poem reads 
they've fixed the tax for the year today. God would never have done it this way. A tax when you die, a tax when you're born, a tax on the water, a tax on the dawn, a tax upon the gallows tree, even a tax on being free. Yes, that's pretty um, snarky, isn't it? Yeah, I think they were pretty annoyed with it in Wales. Um, So yeah, as you mentioned, it was this custom and excise duty that was getting pretty annoying to people that saw smuggling get pretty popular. Uh, You could pretty much succeed in bringing goods ashore anywhere in the UK, but the geography of Wales offered a lot of benefits. Um, And also the character of the Welsh provided free traders with some useful benefits. Um, So much of Wales uh, was, and still is, pretty sparse. Uh, not heavily populated around all of the coastlines. Um, the few preventative centres that were in Wales at the time were widely scattered and underfunded. There are lots of gently sloping beaches, sheltered coves, quite high head points so you could, so you could get vantage points over the beaches, um, made it a lot easier to land in certain bays and coves. Uh, and also the traditional independence of Welsh people, and they are, <laughs> at the time, more so than now, they had a resentment of interference from England, uh, which probably also helped smugglers conceal their activities. Um, so in particular, the south coast of Wales, which is where I'm from, they had two great advantages in addition to everything I just mentioned. So one was the proximity to Bristol, which at the time was obviously the main British port for trade with the New World. And also the south of Wales had a slightly higher population, um, eager to buy uncustomed goods. So it was a prime spot, Wales, for smuggling. Uh, so where's it coming from? As I mentioned, we're quite close to Bristol um, so it was quite an easy matter for them to just transfer goods into small boats um, part of the cargo from in one bound ships would be kind of sailing along the Bristol Channel they'd load some off into their little boats and then attribute that short, short, shortfall on arrival to either spoilage or lost in storms um, more often bribery secured the silence of officials not only at Bristol but also in official landed places in Wales so bribes or, oops, I lost it, kind of worked mm-hmm. well. Um, the Channel Islands was also a major source of contraband entering Wales. Um, at least one Guernsey smuggler, Richard Robinson, had vessels off the coast of Glamorgan. He commanded the largest of these himself, and a smaller vessel was in charge of his son, Pasco. The pair were operating in the 1730s, principally landing goods on Flat Home, for later onward shipment to Wales. Um, the Irish Troubles at the end of the 17th century um, saw a bit of a boost for the smuggling in Wales. Um, they actually led to a ban on civil shipping in the West, so residents were deprived of much of the cargo that would previously have been legit- legitimately landing here. So smugglers were like, hmm, gap in the market there. So um, they were providing creature comforts. They were doing good. Yeah, um, it's all a service to yeah, someone. <laughs> exactly. So it's not that it's not all that kind of nasty contraband, violent, awful things. It was just a case of people were like, "I can't get this stuff. Can you please bring it to me?" Yeah. So do it. Everyone's friend. <laughs> um. So what is being smuggled? Um. Brandy was a big, big one for um 
the Welsh coastline. There's a lot of brandy being brought here. Necessities, as you say. Exactly. Creature comforts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, salt was another big one. Um, it was really heavily taxed and it made it a favourite for smuggling. And of course, Ireland was a major source of rock salt. Um, that was a real necessity and I've got some stories I'll talk about later, but um, salt in particular, small, salt smugglers used to have such an enormous amount of support from the community. Um, it wasn't seen as a bad thing at all. <laughs> yeah. Um, lots of French wine. That was obviously making its way up the Bristol Channel, so that was getting yoinked and brought to mm-hmm. Wales. Um, so brandy was probably the first cargoes that were smuggled into Wales, but then it, Victorian writer suggested that um, wool and corn export was rife in Wales. Um, this was even long before, obviously, smuggling began, uh, import smuggling. Um, she wrote, the almost impassable hills and cums. I don't know if you know what a cum is, like a dingle. Um, mm-hmm, yeah. The almost impassable hills and cums were looked upon as protection against discovery. Uh, she also added that the people involved in wool export were chiefly landowners, whereas the importers of brandy, spirits, tea and silk were of a lower order who frequently showed so much brutality that eventually they became a terror to the people. So that kind of supports what mm. we already said. Um, and it wasn't just luxury goods that smug- smugglers brought in to the eager Welsh. Um, in some parts, there was horrific poverty near starvation, which cre- created a demand for ordinary foodstuffs at a lower price. Um, but that poverty cut both ways, and it was exploited by the smugglers and the preventative um, forces. So they were kind of fighting against each other. The smugglers were coming in and offering a, an affordable way of life for people on the poverty line but then at the same time those preventative forces were coming in and offering them money to harass up the uh, smugglers so it was a bit of a vicious circle there mm. um but yeah it's I've almost got... like they kept investing in the wrong things <laughs> yeah it's almost like it's almost like the government was like this problem that we've caused by trying to get money off them let's throw that money that we've got onto the enforcement of that thing <laughs> And then, and it's like, none of this makes sense. Yeah, it's a mess. I get so annoyed about these things. And it was, you know, it was like 250 years ago. You'd think I'd be over it by now. (laughs) We see, there's so many mirroring kind of like stories to modern day. I know we said we wouldn't talk about drugs, but um, yeah, it's uh, it's a thing. but yeah, I did a lot of digging into like specific beaches and stuff because I got really into it because I just had no idea that it was so prolific around here, smuggling. Mm-hmm. Um, and like even beaches near me and I felt stupid when I was reading it. I was like, oh, that's why it's called that. So there's a cove mm. in Swansea down the Gower called Brandy Cove. And it was literally named that because it was like one of the main beaches. Um, yeah. At least you didn't say Smuggler's Cove. I was going to really laugh if you're like, I've never really thought why Smuggler's Cove was called Smuggler's Cove. (laughs) No, okay, that's fair enough, Brandy. It's it's like this huge... It's sandwiched in between some really popular beaches. Like Caswell Bay is really, really famous, quite popular with surfers and families, and it's always like full of people in the summer. But literally half a mile away, you've got Brandy Cove, which is, like they say, is concealed by rocks. You can't really get to it properly. You can't see it properly perfect for smuggling and um yeah the more the more i read i was finding out that um some of the buildings down there were built specifically for smugglers to store things and yeah 
just crazy and I will talk all about that later but mm -hmm. I just loved it I got really into this research let's go find some coves mm. um I'm gonna take you further south um from what I read about smuggling around the UK with the possible exception of London which I think is a bit of an unknown it seems like Cornwall really was the main place where, where every single person was doing it. <laughs> I mean, you got to remember in Cornwall, you know, you're you're only ever a day's walk from the coast, wherever you are in it. Um, I'm going to start off with another literary thing, actually. Have you, uh, or a fictional thing, have you either read or seen the film of Jamaica Inn? I have not. All right. Well... I've... A, a, another recommendation. Mm. B, I'll give you a little overview. So, um, Jamaica Inn is a novel by Daphne du Maurier, who is a very good English writer, I think. Um, first published in 1936, and then it was made into a film by Alfred Hitchcock. Um, so, it's a period piece set in Cornwall in 1820. And it was actually inspired by when uh, Daphne uh, stayed at the real Jamaica Inn in 1930 which still exists as a pub in the middle of Bodmin Moor and um, if you haven't been for a a spooky misty stroll around Bodmin Moor I also recommend that because it's very atmospheric it's very you can see why she said it there it's very gothic um, so it's a story about a woman called Mary who has had to leave uh, the farm she grew up on and go and live with her aunt at the inn after her parents die um, and to, to kind of try and summarise it very quickly, she discovers that Jamaica Inn is an HQ for smuggling, um, the, which, you know, she guesses when no one actually ever stays at the inn. <laughs> and all they do is serve some booze. Uh, and her awful uncle leads a band of wreckers and murderers. So they're not just taking advantage, they're actively making it happen. Um According to um, the stories of, of that time, gangs of wreckers operated on the coast of Cornwall during the early 19th century. Um, Cornwall was described as a haven of smugglers um, in view of having, you know, similarly to, as you said, with Wales, rocky cove, sheltered bays, tumultuous waves, wild landscapes. Um, so the stories are that the wreckers ensnared the ships to the coastline by tricking them with the use of beacon lights, which they purposefully installed on the shores of the coast. And once the uh, ships uh, came came a cropper of the rocky coast, they were then looted by the wreckers. And indeed, the wreckers would um, kill any of the survivors. Um, let me tell you about the real Jamaica Inn, first of all. So though... Um, an inn has actually stood on that that main road since 1547. The current building there dates from 1750. So that is still before the Jamaica Inn that Daphne de Maurier is writing about. Um, and it's often thought that the inn takes its name from the smugglers who smuggled rum into the country from Jamaica and stored it at the inn. Um, however, myth-busting, the name of the inn is actually said to derive from the local Trelawney family of landowners who were important in Cornwall and two of their family served as governors of Jamaica in the 18th century. So it's probably more to do with the fact that the locals were the governors of Jamaica as opposed to it's about the imports, smuggled imports from Jamaica. The inn that survives today contains the Museum of Smuggling. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> yep, spreadsheet. The museum's got um, mostly kind of items to do with smuggling. So it has things like wanted posters, uh, one of which goes back to 1798. Um, it also has a, a poster celebrating Nelson's victory at the Battle of Trafalgar, which was obviously contemporaneous. It's got pottery figures of smugglers and villains, and it's even got a smuggled in uh, £10 bag of Jamaican ganja. <laughs> How no one's how no one's stolen that yet, or how we know it hasn't been used and replaced, I do not know. Um, even the wonderful TV show Most Haunted uh, did an episode of Jamaica in. They said oh it was gosh. one of the most haunted I'm, places they'd stayed. I'm ashamed to say it, but I think that's why it rang a bell when you said Jamaica in. <laughs> I was wondering. I was like, I bet Larry's seen this episode. I bet that will be a Jamaica in reference. Derek Cora. Wandering Fanny around, dick. going. Fanny loves going, dick. <laughs> Fanny loves dick. Exactly. <laughs> if you don't know what we're talking about, I was going to say Google Fanny loves dick, but maybe don't do that. Um, <laughs> Derek Akora, Fanny loves dick. <laughs> there might that. be some weird niche videos on watch that as it, well. <laughs> watch it on YouTube. Yeah, you you are kind of taking a big risk by doing that, but it's worth it. Um, so it says a ghost story. Smugglers often created ghost stories to distract or to keep people away from their activities. So the record uh, recorded, for example, at Hadley Castle in Essex, that there were a pair of phantoms, the white lady and the black man, uh, which made dramatic appearances, coincidentally, just before there was a shipment of illicit uh, spirits arriving. And then they would disappear when all the liquor had been moved away. So... I found a lot of ghost stories are conveniently placed around smuggling locations. But you know what? I think we should do a whole episode on haunted pubs for Halloween. So oh, can, I'm going to Can we go to the talking. Jamaica Inn and film it, like record it there? Okay. <laughs> I think we should at least try and find some haunted pubs to do it in. Okay. And we can, um, we can like uh, wear pyjamas and eat marshmallows and things. <laughs> Torture under the chin. Yeah, episode. I mean, we might be we might be doing it at four p.m. for the sake of <laughs> convenience, but still. <laughs> anyway, I'm gonna stop talking about haunted pubs because I think that should be another episode. Okay. Um, so smuggling was uh, really popular in the southwest, although, as as you sort of said with Wales, it mostly began as exports. So all the smuggling really began as exports before it became imports. In the southwest, it was tin. That was sort of the most popular smuggled export because they had a lot of it. It was very important. Um, I've got some writing here from a man from 1753. The coasts here swarm with smugglers from Land's End to the Lizard. A rough, reckless and drunken lot were these tinners. And if riots and bloodshed were more scarce in West Cornwall than in some parts, it must have been due to the judicious absence of the custom house officials and not to any qualities in the smugglers. Um... So certainly the Cornish coastline is treacherous, because it was treacherous, it is treacherous, and there were wrecks. But the idea of them being lured, or the locals murdering survivors, is very likely to be a myth. Um, They would have taken advantage of the salvage, absolutely, because why wouldn't you? It's there, you're poor, it's free, there's, there's taxation. So for the wrecks that happened, yeah, they were they were looted, but there doesn't really seem to be any real evidence that they were luring people onto the rocks and then killing them like you would find in uh, the novel of Jamaica in. Mm. There are a few um, naming traditions as well, like like you mentioned with coves. 
So one Cornish man, John Carter von Brega, was perhaps the most famous smuggler. His nickname was the King of Prussia. And he had a line of cannons protecting his base near Land's End. And there's a secret harbour there known as Prussia Cove to this day. Hmm. Um, there was another smuggler called Cruel Coppinger, who gave his name to some of the roads that um, converge on the headland of Steeple Brink in Cornwall. And below this cliff is another inaccessible cove. Um, and this is where Coppinger and his gang stored their contraband. So, uh, yeah, there as well. There are, yeah, so there, there are quite a few. Basically, if you've got an inaccessible cove, likelihood is it's named <laughs> after something to do with smuggling. I think that's what we've learned. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I looked into many of the different coves near where I live and around the Welsh coast. And, yeah, I just found out lots of inf- information about kind of hot points for smugglers. Also found some quite fun stories as well. So I'm going to share some of those. Um, so I've already mentioned Brandy Cove down the Gower. Um, but there's another beach that sounds like it was the more prolific one for smugglers. Um, so it's called Pulti, which uh, translates to Blackpool. Not to be confused with actual Blackpool. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just the name of this beach. Um, it has a 30 foot high um, headland, so very convenient for vantage points and keeping an eye on anyone coming down into the bay. Uh, there's a house as well behind that bank, which was once the Bluefoot Inn, and the landlord there was said to have made quite a convenient arrangement with the brandy smugglers. Um, they'd use his cellars for free storage, um, and the agreement was quite simple. They just don't take out as many barrels as they rolled in. Uh, so that was um, a hotbed for smugglers one writer actually claims that um, more contraband landed there than anywhere else in the Bristol Channel Um, to anyone trying to smuggle there the advantages is pretty obvious so there's obviously a sheltered bay Uh, transport inland was pretty much invisible because there was a lot of um, woodland areas Um, plenty of cover and from the valley there were farms at highway two of them used as staging posts and they were also used as headquarters for the smuggling company so it was almost like a purpose-built geographical landscape for smuggling Mm -hmm. Uh, and in the second half of the 18th century the gang that was smuggling in that area was run by William Arthur of Great Highway Farm and John Griffiths of Little Highway Farm those are the two farms I just mentioned um so William Arthur of Great Highway Farm had been described as the most daring smuggler in the Glamorgan area during the 18th century. And at one stage, he actually ru- ruled Barry Island as a kingdom. So mm. he knew his stuff. Um, in 1786, there was a raid on his farm by 12 revenue men, but uh, he'd been kept well informed. He had a heads up. So the custom and excise officers were met by around 100 men and they quickly retaliated. Um, (laughs) Two subsequent expeditions to capture Arthur failed in 1788. He had all the tricks. Um, There's one story, um, it's quite a nice one, where a custom officer arrived at one of the farms with a search warrant and discovered half an anchor of brandy concealed in the attic. So he sent for reinforcements and said in the meantime he's going to keep close watch on that barrel. Uh, Meanwhile, the smuggling gang just made like this massive riot downstairs in the room below 
to conceal the noise as another one of the smugglers bored a hole in the barrel and just drained the contents into a tub waiting below. <laughs> I have seen this in a film somewhere. Ah. As you were telling that story, I was like, I know what the end of that story is, but how do I know what the end of that story? Like, I can't remember the film is, oh, but that exists a, in a film. We're going to have to try and Google that more and find out. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the two farms at Highway still exist, and it's nice to know that one of the present occupiers is an actual descendant from the Griffiths smugglers. Mm. So, uh, yeah. Brilliant. Um, not far from Pulti is another beach that's very popular, Oxwich Bay, we know it as, but it's also referred to a lot in Oxwich Sands when you're um, reading into the smuggling history of it. Um, so yes, yeah, smugglers landed lots of their cargoes at Oxwich. Um, there's an incident that took place there in 18, 1804, which is quite funny because it led to the breakup of the gang that I've just mentioned up in the highway farms. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also shows how kind of naive some of the smugglers were. You mentioned earlier, is it because Welsh people are rubbish at smuggling? I don't think these guys were the best. <laughs> um, so I, they... No, I said the opposite. Just to be fair, I said, is it because they're really good that we oh, haven't yeah, heard about sorry, them? Oh, yeah, sorry, yeah. And I said, mm, not, not all of them. Just for once, I was not throwing shade at the Welsh. So I think we just need <laughs> just, to mark that moment. I'm just so used to it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't worry, I'm probably slag off marketing later. Just you wait. <laughs> um. So yeah, um, some smugglers had dropped anchor on Oxwich Bay and two of the crew rode to the beach to try and get directions to the highway farms because that's where they were going to hide their um, cargo. There were two men conveniently walking on the beach and gave them detailed directions. Um, And as the helpful locals ambled away, the run began. By midnight, most of the contraband had been carried up to the highway farms and hidden in the cellars. But unfortunately, the two guys that were walking on the beach were members of the preventative authorities. Um, So in the earliest hour of the morning, they went and raided highway farms. Um, The earlier searches were actually fruitless. They didn't find anything, but they persevered, did eventually find the hidden cellars um, and seized 420 casks of brandy. Uh, This is where I love the story because it's just so Swansea. (laughs) So uh, most of the casks were transported back to Swansea under guard, but 17 kegs never arrived. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder why. (laughs) Well, a crowd of 200 local people waylaid the convoy and had to be pacified with drink. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And also... um, because this kind of 200 strong people demanding brandy from the casks turned up, the guards decided they needed to increase the watch over the barrels. So they increased that by t- to 50 men. But the commanding officer knew that those men were going to help themselves to it anyway. So they just thought, get it, get get to it before they can. Just tell them they can drink what they want. <laughs> mm. So, um, yeah, 17 kegs were drunk by a crowd of people who kind of waylaid them on convoy and I don't know how many barrels were also drunk by the guards so I reckon a good 50 one each (laughs) (laughs) and thus was born the tradition of Beaujolais Day (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so yeah that's the Gower kind of area Um, so a bit more towards Midway is the Slane Peninsula Uh, so on the south side of that peninsula there's a Quite a funny story that I think you will enjoy. Um, so it's Castell March House. It's just a story about the kind of 
the wealthy people that lived in the house and how they kind of essentially you don't fuck with the smugglers. <laughs> So, um, in the 17th century, the owner of this house was a knight called Sir William Jones, and he just didn't like his butler. He found him forceful, and he was finding it almost impossible to dismiss the butler. Every time he tried to sack him, it was treated as a joke. Uh, He was getting increasingly annoyed by this butler, so he hatched a plot to get rid of him. He hired um, local smugglers to kidnap him and dump him somewhere and forget about him. But the plot misfired because once the smugglers captured the butler, he kind of talked them talked them round, won them over. They invited him onto his their ship as a butler, and he made himself indispensable. So good, in fact, that he eventually took over the ship as the ship's master. And <laughs> yes. um, once he's been doing that for a while to exact his revenge, he turned the tables, returned to the house, seized Sir William through his crew, and had the same fate. Kind of to William so literally turned it around <laughs> that seems like something I would choose to do with my career exactly given the opportunity is that is that why you thought I'd like it you're like that's, that's what exactly. Tim would do I read it and I was like this is like Tim's spirit animal <laughs> he's gonna yeah, be down like there in the galley making vegan biscuits <laughs> okay, like, let my let me make myself indispensable <laughs> And then you can't mess with me. <laughs> um, the last thing I'm going to chat to you about is a Welsh smuggler called William Owen. Uh, he carved his own niche in history, um, not just because of the extremity of ex- exploits. And when I read this to you, you will be amazed. It is an absolute roller coaster. Um, but it's also the fact that he wrote them down. It was quite rare for smugglers to do that for obvious reasons um but he kept quite um an intense diary uh, and the national library of wales bought that manuscript in 1982 and a brief summary of that is in the library's journal um it's been there since 1985 um so yeah as i said it's a roller coaster and i've broken it down as much as i can but strap in this guy is wild <laughs> Um, so Owen was born in Pembrokeshire in 1707. Uh, he was the son of a wealthy farmer and his wayward ne- nature was evident from a very early age. His father wanted him to either go into the church or into law. He rejected both of those plans and he also made his distaste for farming abundantly clear. When he was 14 or 15, he ran away to Haverford West to join the crew of a ship which were trading with Bristol. The novelty of the sailors... L- Sailor's life did wear off. He was pretty tired of being a skivvy. He didn't like being whipped when he stepped out of line. He was a bit of a free spirit, so he thought, sod this, returned to the farm, but then realised obviously farming sucked as well. (laughs) Um, He didn't enjoy just being a labourer. So after a second false start on a Bidford ship, his father bought him a ship of his own. He was 16 years old and he he began to exhibit another side to his character, a philanderer. He uh, started an affair with a maid which prompted his father to take the ship back. Uh, He retaliated by marrying her. (laughs) So at at this point his long-suffering father returned the ship because he wanted to obviously do good to the lady that he'd married Um, and along with the ship he gave him some cash to set up business. Uh, So he traded legally for a while. He was married, he had a ship, he had a bit of money. 
always looking good, but he was obviously seduced by the stories of the smugglers that he was hanging out with at Dockside. So he tried his hand at smuggling. Uh, he was shit. <laughs> <laughs> so um, he was trying to smuggle goods in from the Isle of Man. He got caught on his very first trip. He lost his ship and everything he owned, and he fled to the West Indies. <laughs> um, <laughs> that is that is a pivot. That is a business pivot. <laughs> um, he then joined the aptly named smuggling ship Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> don't, um, don't think it quite meant the same thing as we're thinking. <laughs> I think it meant inspires terror as yeah. opposed to is shit. But I like yeah, it. But yeah. <laughs> Um, but it's from this point the narrative changes slightly and there are lots of kind of theories but I think people are just generally trying to say that they're going to call bullshit on the rest of what he's written because he's gone to the West Indies with a tail between his legs and he's Mm -hmm. writing this autobiography and it's all going downhill and yeah it just goes a bit wild (laughs) so I'm going to finish the last bits of the story so um, he, these are just kind of highlights that he'd wrote. And it is like, it's almost like a child writing like an action story where they're the hero. Um, so the terrible engaged in a Spanish ship, uh, a battle with a Spanish ship. And Owen dispatched 25 of the crew by rolling a powder keg, fuse fizzing onto the deck of the Spanish coaster. Despite a slight wound to his head, Williams was soon back in Barbados enjoying the local ladies. We later then find him various smuggling trips in the area. On one of these, he was captured by a British man of war, but was judged to be such a brave fellow that he was appointed midshipman and stayed with the vessel for 20 months. But he got homesick, so he went home. (laughs) (laughs) It is literally like a child's book. Yeah, sure, hun, sure. Um, when he returned home again, he tried to set up a legitimate business with his own boat. He dallied with various local women, fell out with his wife, turned to drink. You know, the huge. Mm-hmm. Um, as the years go by, his catalogue adventures grow even more. He returns to smuggling with considerable success. Um, he helped a friend from Aberystwyth uh, by leading a large party to lay siege to a local mansion. He secures the surrender in heroic manner by loading a wagon with gunpowder, setting light to the wagon and then rolling it under the balcony of the building. Sensing a theme here as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, later, we see him masquerading as a baronet off the Isle of Man. Um, he plays double agent as a customs officer with a lucrative sideline in smuggled goods. Ah, <laughs> uh, oh, this line. He falls in love with a young Manx girl, but is prevented from marrying her by her own reluctance to get a divorce and by the fact that she's a minor. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> um... He also shows great adversity, um, losing his boat and virtually everything. Uh, losing his boat and virtually everything once again. He saw through the treachery uh, and raffled a cow to raise money. <laughs> um, his fortune soon changed with the help from the Manx girl, who he's now is passing off as his wife. He buys a new yacht, carries on smuggling. In seventeen forty-four, though, the authorities are on his tail. His ship is attacked in Cardigan. Despite overwhelming odds, the ship's crew escape but kill four men, including a customs officer, in the showdown. By this time, Owen Williams must have been pretty notorious because um, the Isle of Man authorities, who were noted for their leniency, joined in the search 
and he and his sweetheart are to escape from the island by... Ooh, sorry, I'm going to say that whole sentence again. By this time, Williams must have been quite notorious because the Isle of Man authorities, who were noted for the leniency, joined in the search and him, him and his wife had to escape from the island on an Irish oyster boat. Uh, whilst they were on the run in Ireland, they paused as peddlers until the heat died down and then travelled back to Wales, then back to Ireland, then back to the Isle of Man. And that's when eventually all these tales that may or may not be true, um, his luck did run out. <laughs> he was captured and he was brought to trial in Hereford. But, <laughs> once again, showing his character... He defended himself at the trial um, against a very severe prosecution and he was acquitted, largely because of his eloquent defence. So he was a free man once again. He went back to trying to be a good guy and have another business, but fell into smuggling again. Um, he also became a castaway. <laughs> he went back to um, the Caribbean. He ended up with a tropical fever and had to come back to Wales. <laughs> um <laughs> And it was when he came back to Wales with his tropical disease that he fell in with a chap called James Lilly. He was a cardigan fencing master and a bit of a bad egg. Um, he'd escaped from jail in Haverford West because he was awaiting transportation to America for seven years for stealing two linen shirts. <gasps> um, so yeah, the, those two together... Not good news. They burgled a house in Pembroke. They stole 20 guineas and shot a servant in the face. Um, <laughs> they'd vanished for a few days, but they were spotted in Cardigan and a hue and a cry gave pursuit. Uh, that's when it all gets a bit mental. Um, so Lily... That, sorry, that's when it gets mental. <laughs> well, this is where we don't know for sure what quite happened because obviously uh -huh. he's stopped writing by this point because he's in so much trouble. Because he thinks no one's going to believe it now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, they were on the run. Um, they got spotted. Uh, old linen, two, two linen shirts, Lily. Um, he shot the horse of the leading pursuer, uh, whilst William Owen shot the actual pursuer himself. And then, for some reason, uh, William Owen turned the gun on James Lily. Just shot his mate. Uh, why he shot him, we will never know. Uh, lots of different theories around it. Um, but people seem to think that the most likely one is that obviously Owen was on foot and he was also ill with this tropical fever. Um, so perhaps he just killed Lily so he could take his horse and escape. Who knows? But um, the inquest brought a verdict of murder. Um, Owen was tried in Carmarthen on the 17th of April, 1747. Uh, he tried to defend himself again, but he was convicted this time and executed on the 2nd of May, 1747. And the wildest thing of it all, his age at death was 30 years old. So all of wow. that crammed into, well, not even 30 years, it was... He was 15 or 16 when he had his mm -hmm. first boat. So in 15 years, if you all kept up with that, <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's, that was the life and times of William Owen. Wow. I mean, first of all, that must have been one hell of a spreadsheet to, <laughs> to rival ours. Uh, second, I hope he had American Express because he would have really racked up the Amex points on that one. Um, and third, on behalf of Netflix, I, I accept your pitch. Yeah, um, I'd, I'd I'm going to give you five series, but 
but Thank I am going to cancel it after two. Thank you. Is it going to be Johnny Depp or? Um, I don't. Twist, I don't know. Let's let's not touch that one. Um, <laughs> let's give it someone Welsh instead. Yeah. Someone who can do an amazing Welsh accent like Robert Downey Jr. Okay. Cool. Yes. Of course. Why didn't I think of him first? So I would next like to tell you about Mother Redcap. Um, mother, mother, your mother Redcap. This is Mother Redcap of Liverpool, whose real name is Paul Jones. Uh, Paul, not Paul. That's the way I said Paul. that. <laughs> yeah, that's the way I said that. Sounded a bit like Paul. Paul, like Polly. Um, <laughs> so Paul had a um, a smuggling inn that was located on the Egremont Promenade, Liverpool. And um, all the smugglers who had, uh, you know, got what they wanted along that coastline would um, escape capture by going through tunnels and caves with their loot from that coastline towards where Mother Redcap was housed. So legend has it that there are hidden tunnels all over Wallasey and they all connect back to Mother Redcaps. So she was well known for being trustworthy to um, handle your contraband, your loot, and would store it within the building and hidden beneath um, the inn in the tunnels. Although, obviously, she did it for a fee uh, and a cut of the profits, wasn't that the goodness of her heart? Um, so this this place was a small whitewashed building, just like a little cottage that was built in 1595. Um, it was known before as the halfway house and some other things. It wasn't known in, uh, as Mother Redcaps until the 18th century. Outside of this inn was a wooden seat, which was um, actually created from uh, with timbers from the wrecks. And it had a short wooden flagstaff at one end with a large plain wooden vane at the top. And the vane was supposed to work with the wind, but it wasn't. It was a signaler. In reality, it uh, sent a, a message to the locals Um so the the star fitted down into the into the sockets and it could be turned manually in any direction and was used by the smugglers for signaling so if it pointed to the house it meant come on in and if it pointed away it meant keep away pretty basic uh at the other end of the seat as well was another post with a sign hanging from it with a portrait of old mother redcap holding a frying pan on uh, on a painted fire and underneath it had the words all ye that are weary, come in and take rest. Our eggs and our ham, they are of the best. Our ale and our <laughs> porter are likewise the same. Step in if you please and give them a name. That's very Dr. Seuss. Isn't it? <laughs> not, not saying she was a poet, but she certainly was an innkeeper. Uh, no. Mother Redcaps uh, Inn and House would go on to be a cafe in later years, but then it became derelict and... I think very sadly, in the 1970s, the cottage was so damaged by vandalism that it was deemed unsafe and was demolished. Ooh. I feel like that's a very mid-20th century thing to do, and it wouldn't have happened today. Even however decrepit it was, it would have been restored or secured in some way. Yeah. Um, so that was come the most famous Mother Redcap. But Mother Redcap was also a generic name for an alewife. Um, because they were distinguished by their headwear, so alewives would wear these red caps and be called mother red caps. There's another, there's another mother red cap story which is closer to home for me. 
uh, Jenny or Ginny, both were used, I think, Bingham, lived in Camden. Um, oh, I thought you were going to say like Mother Redditch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, not Mother Redditch. Uh, Mother Mother Redcap from Camden. Uh, she, well, she lived a few hundred years ago, but um, her, her ghost, it is said. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to do too, too much haunted stuff again, but anyway... Ginny Bingham, Mother Redcap's ghost, is said to haunt the World's End pub uh, in Camden and the next door Underworld oh. Club. I was only there a few weeks ago, actually. I love that pub. Yeah. Um, so the pub's thoughts have been built where her cottage once stood, uh, back when Camden was still rural as well. Um, it's rumoured that her parents had been hanged as witches. They were found guilty of child murder. And uh, she sort of played on that reputation in a way um, because people thought, oh, well, you must be a witch as well. Tell me my future. <laughs> and she made a living from telling fortunes. <laughs> um, I, I totally do that. If people believed me, I'd be like, yeah, all right. Yeah, all right. Give, give me some money and I'll do it. And, you know, and also acted as a folk doctor. Um, so she sort of, she encouraged it. She kept a black cat. <laughs> She apparently wasn't very good looking. She played up to being a witch. Um, She attracted many lovers, despite that. Or perhaps because of it, I imagine. Uh, And the story goes that she she murdered at least one of them. (laughs) And possibly several more. She was apparently very skilled with poisons. Uh, Do you think... um... We we have a theory, don't we? How um, for some reason baristas are just sexy, and you instantly want to make love to them because they can make you a nice cup of coffee. Right. Um, do you think it's the same for witches? <laughs> she made them a nice potion. And they were like, "Yeah, I'd hit that." Yeah. Sure. Tell me my future. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then let's bang. <laughs> yeah. So um, let's say yes. Uh, so she she meets her end. The, the story goes that the devil himself came to collect her soul. Basically, there's a lot of nonsense around Jenny Bingham, but she was known as a mother red cap, and she is said to haunt the World's End pub in Camden. <laughs> I'll look out for it next time. Mm-hmm. Um, since it's almost or pretty much festival season now... Um, I thought I'd talk about some modern day smuggling, mm-hmm. which is trying to get booze into festivals. Ah, of course. <laughs> um, so yeah, this is mainly anecdotal stuff, but also some stuff I googled. Um, but just yeah, the best ways to get your booze into festivals. Are you trying sense. to tell us this is all stuff you've done, but uh, maybe you haven't because you're avoiding any kind of repercussions? Um, I, I've I've attempted some of these. Okay. I'm, I'm not ashamed to admit that I've attempted many of these, but some of them are questionable, and I haven't. Right. I've also seen people attempt some of these and it go wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, I just compiled a list. Great. Um, so they go from kind of like fairly tame slash not likely to work to kind of ingenious to pretty disgusting. So we'll go from the top. <laughs> uh, so number one is just sun cream bottles. Because obviously you've got to get through your bouncers to get into the festival or into the arenas that you go into. They're going to search your bags. Um, so you're trying to think what's a, a relatively large vessel that I can get away with needing to take in sun cream. Mm-hmm. So yeah, lots of people kind of forgo 
looking after their skin and not getting sunburnt to take, you know, 500 mils of vodka in instead. Uh, top tip, wash it out first. Um, another one that I have seen work is a Pringles can. Because um, I think you can kind of fit a, quite a thin bottle of spirit in there that's quite big. And also because it's got like a foil bit and a lid on top, generally it's uh, it's deemed like, oh, it hasn't been opened, it's fine. Mm-hmm. And I've actually seen bouncers kind of open them and I've seen bouncers open them and find things like that. But I've also seen people um, like kind of super glue the foil back on and then the lid. But obviously you pick up a can of Pringles, it's a lot lighter than it. Yeah, the weight vodka, would give it away, so wouldn't it? It's like, mm. Um, one that I've done myself is, um, water bottles. So you have a branded bottle of water and, um... Oh, I thought you meant like hot water bottles. (laughs) I was like, why are you taking a hot water bottle to a festival? No, not like a bottle of water. (laughs) Yeah, again with you now. (laughs) So this is back in the day, like they used to let you take your own water in. Uh, they don't let you do it so much anymore. Um... But we found a way of taking the kind of lid of the water off without it breaking, looking like the seal had broken. Mm-hmm. So it was easy to kind of fill it with a clear spirit, put the lid back on. And then when the bouncers are looking at it, they're like, oh, it hasn't been opened. It's fine. But it's actually vodka. So that one worked. But then they got a bit savvy to that. Sometimes they'd... Um... <laughs> I remember them once asking my friend, like, is that water? Or is that something it shouldn't be? And they were like, no, it's look, it hasn't been opened. And they were like, open it and drink some. And literally, they were having to like drink it and just do their best poker face. Like, mm-hmm. see, it's water. <clears throat> <laughs> so um, there's that. Um, wine bags. Um, we are all fans of a box of wine in a festival. So you take it out of the box. You've got a lovely big bag of wine. Uh, and then you've got to get inventive. Like the women pretended to be pregnant with the whiskey mm-hmm. it's you know you can put it in your bum you can put it in your boobs wherever you want it <laughs> can I you just seen... clarify put it in your bum <laughs> put it in your right, bum okay I, i'm gonna i'm gonna let people just take from interpret that, that what they need to okay um i did once see a guy who had a bag of wine down the back of his trousers walking through security and it burst <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> which was really funny um if you are at a festival where you are allowed alcohol on the campsite but not allowed alcohol in the arena so therefore you can kind of go back to the tent and have a swig and back to the arena a good way of doing it is getting like little mini plastic bottles enough for like a shot or a double shot fill them with all your booze and whack those down your wellies because they don't look down your wellies so um Mm -hmm. get some oversized wellies as well just fill literally fill your boots um this one's a bit obvious but it weirdly works sometimes because you go to security and they ask you to stand in like a t position and they pat you down Mm -hmm. to check they don't always think to look in the hood of your hoodie so whack some cans in the hood of your hoodie (laughs) great way to smuggle some in it either works or it doesn't (laughs) (laughs) um you can be bold and wear one of those little camelback uh backpacks that are for hydration sometimes People just don't realise. Like, if you walk with confidence and just walk through, like, yeah, nothing to show here, you can go away with that. Um, number seven, I've just written crotch bottle. Just whack a bottle down your crotch. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Depends how frisky the bouncers are going to get. They might pat you down, they yeah. might not. <laughs> Worth a try. 
Um, these have got good recently. Novelty hip flasks. I have seen some genius ones mm. of late. One of which was an umbrella. It was like a little pocket umbrella, like the little black ones you get when you kind of up the tills in Primani or whatever. Open that up at the bottom where you would hold the umbrella and it's just a, you know, 750 mil, a.k.a. a bottle of wine straight in your umbrella. But I've seen um, hip flask cameras, hairbrushes, uh, binoculars, even tampons. So you can go wild. I think tampons is a good one. Um, a sipping seat I also saw advertised on Amazon recently, which is essentially like a camp chair with a padded seat for extra comfort. Right. A padded seat for booze. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that also holds a whole bottle of wine. Then we're getting into the desperate slash gross section. Right. <laughs> uh, what what one actually? This next one I think is pretty good. Um. Because you can often take food into festivals, especially fruit and things. People inject vodka into the fruit that they take into the arenas. Mm -hmm. So you can have a nice vodka orange when you're sitting by the bar, laughing at the queue. And the last two, <laughs> these both came from the Glastow Chat Facebook group that I'm in. Um, as it's a family-friendly festival one woman said a fail-safe uh, way to smuggle in extra booze in um, because they've cracked down on the amount of booze you're supposed to or allowed to take into the campsites at Glastonbury now uh, so people are having to actually smuggle it at the main gates um, she said they never check the nappies so just put uh, all your booze into all the individual nappies so if you want to get wasted at Glastow have a baby that's the conclusion yeah. yes and the last one is my favourite one that I had not thought of before. And this chap does it every year and he claims he never gets stopped. Not just at Glastonbury, at every festival. Um, he mixes whiskey and lemonade to look like urine. He then puts said mixture into a colostomy bag, mm -hmm. which he attaches to himself. No questions asked. In you go. <laughs> yeah, I mean... What's what's a little indignity to just have a slightly cheaper experience at a festival? <laughs> <laughs> um, he did say it's it kind of pays off in dividends because obviously you get no questions asked. You've got a colostomy bag full of whiskey and lemonade, and you've also got an audience of grossed out people watching you drink your colostomy bag. <laughs> yeah, that would be the best part of it. That would be the best part. I like yeah. it. So yeah, that is modern day smuggling. Nice. Um. Mm. A, none of this would happen if they didn't overcharge. Yeah. Still still true. Facts. Still true. Um, B, you didn't mention my favourite method, which is to... Selling yourself isn't smuggling. <laughs> isn't it? Um, is to... Uh, it is the idea. No, it's to visit the site <laughs> the week beforehand and bury it in the ground. Ah, oh, yes, I've heard this one. X marks the spot. Proper pirate treasure stuff. You go beforehand, you find a quiet corner somewhere, you bury it, and then you come back the week later and... Oh, there nice. it is! And it's kept nice and chill, and you can put several bottles down there. So, that, that anyway, yeah. that's that's my preferred method, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm going to stick with a colostomy bag. Okay. <laughs> uh, I might just but... whack red wine in it and freak them out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, they'll call an ambulance, I think. Um, 
I'm going to talk a little bit about shipwrecks, actually. This isn't really... Well, this one isn't really a smuggling thing, but it's adjacent. So there's a wreck called the Valachia, which is a cargo ship that sank in 1895 off the Scottish coast following a collision with another vessel in heavy fog. And it just left Glasgow and was packed with thousands of bottles of alcohol. Um, most of them have been preserved in the cold water where the ship uh, lies still on, this, on the seabed for more than a century. And a diver called Steve Hickman has been gathering these since the 1980s and even sampled some. Um, he said it had the most atrocious smell. A sort of salty, putrefied smell. I think that would be the best description. It didn't taste any better. <laughs> so, you know, why is he still going down there and getting some? Uh, last year, he handed some to scientists at a research firm called Brew Lab, who, along with their colleagues from the University of Sunderland, were able to extract live yeast from the liquid inside three of the bottles. And then they used that yeast in an attempt to recreate the original beer. So they said they opened it in containment level two laboratory conditions, which I think sounds <laughs> sexy. Um, and that involved unsealing the bottles in a special cabinet filled with sterile air in order to protect the scientists from any possible pathogens in the beer. <laughs> I mean, Steve's already had a go, so I think you're fine. Um and it also ensures that the samples don't then become contaminated with any modern-day yeast strains. So genetic testing revealed that the Wallachia stout contained two different types of yeast. Brettanomyces, which we might be familiar with from our yeast episode. It's not that uncommon. And then also Debariomyces. So um, they said that it's unusual to find Debariomyces in an historic beer, although that type of yeast has turned up in a few Belgian beers that have been left open to the air. So with that combo, they created a 7.5% stout, which uh, the divers were then allowed to taste. And they said <laughs> it tasted chocolatey and coffee. So like a stout, in other words. Mm. Um, but that's an example of this quite growing field of research uh, among brewers um, and other fermenters who look for forgotten strains of yeast in the hope that they can be put to some kind of good use because um, as we found out in the yeast episode it, it highly affects flavour there are quite a lot of kind of different versions of it even though we got very used to just using the Saccharomyces ones in industrial brewing so that means hunting for them in old bottles hunting for yeast hunting for yeast in old bottles found on <laughs> shipwrecks and looking in ancient pots and collecting samples from ruined distilleries, which sounds really fun. Uh, looking for those fabled strains. It's um, it's called bioprospecting. Um, and beyond, you know, having tasty drinks, it could have other applications, resurrecting historic yeasts. It could help to clean up pollution. It can help in aromas for the perfume industry. Um, we don't quite know. It's, it's a very experimental and interesting field, I think. The mysteries of yeast. Yes. And there are some breweries that are wrecking their drinks on purpose uh, to see what the effect of deep sea brewing might be. Uh, so I got this one, actually, which does link back to our theme eventually. Uh, the owners of three breweries in Mar del Plata, which is uh, in Argentina, 
teamed up with the diving school for what they described as a first of its kind months long experiment in deep water beer making. So they decided to make a dark ale between 11 and 12% ABV, barrel it, put it underwater and tie it to a ship called the Chronometha, which was a Soviet era ship that sank in 2014 and has become a popular diving spot. So the plan was to combine the aged liquid with another beer to make about 2,000 bottles of beer named after the ship it was aged in. So not just those bottles, but to use it in, in further fermenting, uh, further brewing. However, it was smuggled. It was oh. it was stolen in a heist. All 185 no. gallons. Yeah, all 185 gallons stolen, disappeared. And the annoying thing is, it wasn't even drinkable as it was. So either these people tried to sell on some gross pre-beer, or they just wasted it all. Um, but it was an utterly pointless act of sabotage, really, rather than smuggling, to be honest. Um, the breweries have said they're going to try it again, but this time they're going to use a secret location <laughs> to try and spot uh, stop that from happening. Maybe get some sharks or something to... Yes, employ some sharks. Uh, finally, I, I felt like we couldn't exit an episode about smuggling without me asking, did you used to read The Famous Five? Yes, of course. <laughs> it's how, how awful is The Famous Five? <laughs> I shouldn't have asked you such a leading question. Sorry, did you enjoy The Famous Five? <laughs> uh, Favourite books. If you've got me on Goodreads, you'll know. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Even even in the 80s, I felt like they were inappropriate stories. (laughs) (laughs) Just saying something. It was always about smugglers. Always about smugglers, hidden passages, gypsies being untrustworthy, and conversations between Dick and Fanny. Fanny loves Dick. Fanny, Fanny loves Dick. Went back to that again. That's what that was about. It was someone reading the famous five from beyond the grave. <laughs> um, yeah, they they are truly terrible stories. Um, do you remember what they drank? Uh, I want it to be rum, <laughs> but I don't think it was. <laughs> okay, it's not rum. I wondered if you'd remember this. I guess no. I guess maybe you're too young. The the cliche is that they were always drinking lashings of ginger beer. Oh, lashings. So that's what so people of a certain age would be like, oh, they always drank lashings of ginger beer. I um, um I had g- actually ginger that... beer in my rum. I'm on brand. Oh, <laughs> there you go. You are you are one of the famous five. Call me Fanny. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Fanny was the aunt. She wasn't. She wasn't one of the, Fanny, uh, the aunt, aunt Fanny. It was, yeah. it was Dick's aunt Fanny. <laughs> oh, she wasn't one of the famous five. Um. So yeah. So the the cliche is that they drank lashings of ginger beer. Actually, that was never said in the books. In the books, they mostly drink spring water. <laughs> oh God, it's tragic, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it really is. They mostly drank spring water, but the lashings of ginger beer comes from a parody. From, from the 80s, from the comic strip Presents, which was a sketch show that um, French and Saunders uh, and Aid Edmondson were in. 
and they did a parody called Fife Go Mad in Dorset, <laughs> which was basically them as adults being like the worst versions that you remember of the famous five and really like playing up on the racism and the privilege and the stupidity and all that sort of stuff. Um, and that's where the phrase lashings of ginger beer comes from. Mm. It's from this 1980s parody, but it's really stuck in people's minds that it was a real thing. By the way, the sequel to Five Go Mad in Dorset that they did the year after was called Five Go Mad on Mescaline. <laughs> you can watch it on YouTube if you want to. So, There's a lot to Google know, after this episode. If you've, yeah, if you've read Jamaica in <laughs> and you've watched um, all the alien comedies, then I don't know, maybe go on YouTube and watch the comic strips version of The Famous Five. Actually, I don't know if I should recommend that. I haven't probably haven't seen it since the 80s. It yeah. could be really You're offensive. You're going to cancel yourself. Stop. <laughs> yeah, I might have just cancelled myself via, via trying to cancel the Famous Five. But that's how modern society works, right? Um, do you know what, as well? There was <laughs> there was like a hundred year anniversary or something musical um, produced of the Famous Five in 1997 called Smuggler's Gold. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Still about smugglers, always about smugglers. So there's a, a musical in 97 called Smuggler's Gold, which is available on DVD in all good charity shops. And um, it starred John Lee from S Club 7. <laughs> oh, well, that says it all, doesn't it? I'm surprised. And now Joe I'm wondering. Wasn't there. <laughs> Now I'm wondering if S Club 7 was Enid Blyton inspired, because she did The Secret 7 as well, didn't she? What if S Club 7 is like a pop version of Secret 7? Have I just cracked the case? Are 5 the pop version of The Famous 5? Yeah. (laughs) Have we ever asked 5 what they think about gypsies? (laughs) (laughs) I bet their rider is just, they just write lashings of ginger beer. (laughs) Yeah, I literally saw five this weekend at a festival. I should have asked them. <laughs> excuse me, excuse me, Richie, Richie, how'd you feel about gypsies? Ah, <laughs> uh, anyway, um, but <laughs> that wasn't John Lee's only brush with the famous five. He also, when Disney did an update of it, a modern update of the famous five, as in why would you even bother in 2008, John Lee did the voiceover for one of the characters. Oh my God. Why is John Lee so obsessed with the famous five? Maybe he's a proper fanboy and he's just living his life's dream. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, I don't think that had anything to do with drinks, but I just had to let you know. (laughs) I just had to let you know that fact. Bloody hell. I feel like there's a big... A big Google search going to happen after this session for me. Yeah. I'm yeah, going to be texting you at midnight emotion. saying, okay, I've, <laughs> I've finished my research. <laughs> As usual. <laughs> um, and so our <laughs> glasses are dry, which means it's time to get a snack. So who's smuggling peanuts? Cheers, everybody. Peanuts. <laughs> Oh, please go and Google Peanuts shooting stars as well. <laughs> I don't know why we bother doing this podcast. All we ever say is Google it. <laughs> <laughs> Just Google it. Just Google it. <laughs> <laughs>